This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. Have you ever wondered why you and your siblings are different? Raised in the same home by the same parents, yet each so different. How much of our personality is determined by our genes and how much by our environment? Today we explore nature versus nurture when it comes to personalities and disease. I'm Claire Blake and you're listening to Body Lab. And Professor Nick Martin is a senior scientist here at QIMR Berghofer and head of the Genetic Epidemiology Research Group. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Great pleasure, Claire. How much of our personality is from our parenting environment and how much is genetic? Well, first of all, we can only speak in population averages. We can never say for a particular individual uh, how much uh, of their personality is genetic and how much environmental. But we, at a population level, we can say it's about 40 or 50% of the differences between people are due to genetic factors. That's a high number. Well, it's intermediate. I mean, for IQ, it's about 80%. Um, for uh, social attitudes, it's a bit lower, sort of around 30 40%. For uh, psychiatric symptoms of depression, for example, it's about 30 to 40%. So personality is sort of in the mid-range of uh, genetic influences on behaviour. So we can have a go at our parents more about how smart we are other than how nice we are. <laughs> Let them off a hook in a few things. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> so what elements of our personalities are influenced by our genes? Well, that depends upon how you describe personality and there's a whole branch of psychology that is attempted to sort of uh, provide a taxonomy of personality over the years and, um, and there are lots of different ways of classifying it. But the, the two dominant uh, dimensions, and it's best to think of it in terms of dimensions, mm. are uh, extroversion versus introversion and uh, neuroticism versus stable. And that actually describes a lot of the variation in personality. But there are other dimensions as well. Uh, there's a dimension called tough-minded to tender-minded, uh, another um, called socially desirable versus basically don't care. Um, uh, another one called harm avoidance, which is actually closely related to neuroticism. Reward dependence, I think uh, some of us probably recognise that behaviour. Mm-hmm. And novelty seeking, or uh, which is related to impulsiveness. So these are all different dimensionalities that have been proposed uh, and studied uh, in relation to genetics, and they all come out you know, that figure somewhere between 40 and 50%. It must be incredibly difficult to measure. Well, um, behaviour is difficult to measure, yes, but that's the whole branch of psychology. That's what so appealed to me about it. I mean, it's easy for a physicist to say, oh, well, this is all rubbish because you can't use a thermometer or an oscilloscope or something. Yeah. I mean, quite clearly there is such a thing as personality and differences between it because everybody talks about it. Um, so the challenge for psychologists is to try and is to try and measure that, and we do that using questionnaires. People are highly familiar with those. Uh, what they may know, not know is to how much work goes into the development of those and the criteria by which one would regard them as useful or not. Uh, how, how reliable is this measurement from day to day within the same person, from year to year? And the constructs I've spoken about, uh, neuroticism and extroversion, are incredibly stable over the lifetime. Uh, once people have reached about 25, their personality seems to be pretty much set in concrete. There's actually also quite a lot of consistency before 25. As people are growing up, you can see these these traits developing and any parent can see that in their own children. The other 
important aspect of measuring personality is whether they predict anything interesting or useful. That's called the validity. Uh, you know, a good test of extroversion, introversion questionnaires, you find that used car salesmen tend to be more extrovert and librarians tend to be more introvert. So that's a sort of reasonable... Um, a, a reasonable sort of reality check, you know, and 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 there's huge amounts of work have been done like that 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 uh, give one some confidence that these scales are useful. You've studied twins for literally decades, and that's really important and very helpful when assessing the nature versus nurture. Absolutely, that's really where the subject has come from. It's the comparison of the similarity of identical and non-identical twins. The methods really very simple conceptually identical twins share all the genes in common um, so any differences between them must be due to environmental factors non-identical twins uh, are just like actually ordinary brothers and sisters they share about half their genes in common so to the extent that they are less similar than identical twins uh, you can attribute that to genetic factors and a little bit of simple algebra you can actually calculate the relative proportion of genes and environment that are contributing, which is where the numbers I gave you earlier come from. Mm. When you get those results, what are you hoping to do with them? Well, knowing uh, from the twin studies mm. that there's a substantial heritability, in our case about 37%, um, we can then ask, well, what are those genes? Uh, fortunately, uh, beginning 2005, we have this technique called genome-wide association scan, mm. which depends upon typing very large numbers of cases with the condition, disease, disease you know, depression in this case, uh, and controls with gene chips, uh, which are little chips about the size of a postage stamp on which you can type uh, up to a million gene variants called single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs for short. And then you do that for tens of thousands of cases and tens of thousands of controls and you do simple statistical tests to say, well, is this variant more common in cases than controls? So, and that, as I said, that's called a genome-wide association scan or GWAS for GWAS short. if you're Googling it. That's right. <laughs> and that's just what's revolutionised this field in the last 10 years or so. I mean, we know more about the genetics of complex traits. So I'm not, talk, not talking just about depression, but all the other common complex traits, heart disease, psychiatric diseases, neurologic diseases, autoimmune diseases, you name it, arthritic diseases and so on. All of these have made huge strides forward as a result of this technology. So the, the aim in every case is to expand our knowledge of the biochemical basis underlying these diseases with the hope that, that this will lead to the development of new drugs, and there are already plenty of examples of that on, 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 you know, happening right now. But the other aspect is that these genome-wide association scan results, you can create what's called a polygenic risk score, and you just simply add up all of the SNPs that are influencing a trait, and you can add up the extent to which they're doing that and get for an individual what's called a, a total polygenic risk score for that disease and you can look at the distribution in this population uh, of this in the population and it will have a nice normal distribution and you can show that those people at the top end of the distribution you know say the top five or ten percent yeah. are at greatly increased risk of the disease than those 
at the bottom of that distribution. At a clinical level, that would be extraordinary information. Well, exactly. And and so you ask me, well, what's the, what's the use of this and how is it going to offend, affect doctors? In fact, I think this is probably going to have, uh, at least in the shorter term, an even bigger impact than the effects on pharma, pharmaceutical development, mm. which I think will come, but they, that always takes longer. You know, it's just a very long process, whereas this, quite frankly, is available now. And, in fact, it's already happening. I've just, along with many other people, just had my genome genotyped at 23andMe uh, for a couple of hundred dollars. And you can get your individual results from that. You can download them. You can upload them to another website called impute.me, which is free. Within 24 hours or so, it feeds you back your polygenic risk score on about 500 different traits and diseases. If, if you, you want, want to, to know. know. <laughs> if you want to know. And you need to, be, uh, you need to be prepared for that. Let's talk about depression and genetics. One in seven of us will have major depression in our lifetime. So how much of that risk is environment and how much is genetics? Is it the same as everything else? It's about 37%. There have been huge numbers of studies done as a recent meta-analysis that actually meta-analysed all these studies on hundreds of thousands of people, and the figure comes out that depression is about 37%. That's substantial, but it's actually at the bottom end of the range for psychiatric conditions. For schizophrenia, for example, it's about 80%. For ADHD, it's about 80%. Bipolar, it's about 60%. Um, so depression is slightly less genetically influenced than those other conditions I mentioned. But still, a third of the, of the variation between people is a lot. That really is the starting point of my research, which is to actually go further from the twin studies and say, well, what are those genes? Because if we can find those genes, maybe that will give us uh, new clues on how to treat depression. Was at the moment finding out that you're genetically predisposed? Does that then become a risk factor? That's a very good question, and I don't know of any studies that have been done directly addressing that. Uh, in fact, our ability to um, do that study has only been available for about the last year because it's only in the last year that we've actually being able to find over 100 of the genes for depression and we're, for the first time, able to start calculating a person's risk. And I should say right, right away that it's still a very, very inexact tool. It accounts for only about 2 or 3% of the variation in the population. Um, we're going to need very much bigger studies than we've done so far to get that figure up to the point where it's a more useful instrument. Yeah. But in principle, we can do it. On studies, you're currently running the Australian arm of the world's largest genetic study of depression, and I guess you have a lot of hopes for this study. Yes, yeah, the Australian Genetics of Depression study, we've recruited about um, over 20,000 cases of depression from around Australia, both by uh, news broadcasts like this, but also by directly um, uh, going through the Department of Human Services and identifying people who been prescribed antidepressants at least four times and sending them letters asking them to take part in our study. I should emphasise that all of that is done with the strictest privacy guidelines. We don't get their names and addresses. We rely on them to contact us. And from those all those people who volunteer, the 20,000, we ask them to give us a saliva sample, just spit in a tube and uh, mail that back to us and we extract DNA from that and then get it genotyped. And we've had that done for over 15,000 people so far. 
that is contributing to the worldwide total uh, of uh, people taking part in this depression study, which is now over 200,000. Believe it or not, we're actually going to need about 10 million cases to find about 80% of the genetic variation uh, in depression. But I believe we'll actually get there within the next 10 years or so. We'll, we'll get to that point. And then we really will have a very powerful instrument that will be able to tell people their risk of depression if they would like to know that. Talking about those participants, they are particularly responsive in this area of study, aren't they? They are. They are. And um, I'm not quite sure how to put this. Uh, Fortunately, uh, unfortunately, they tend to be concentrated in um, the more highly educated members of, of the public. Um, we're not really getting a, a great representation across the whole social spectrum. The people who take part in our studies uh, are much more likely to volunteer and be att- attuned. So we're not really getting a full cross-section of society. That's so. unfortunate, but they are mm. incredibly motivated. Well, they're very motivated, and, and, and so that's why I shouldn't say unfortunately, because we're extremely grateful that they have volunteered, and we want a lot more of them to volunteer, please, because we, we need huge numbers. I don't actually think that that bias in the social characteristics of our sample is actually critical to the quest for finding genes for depression. If you'd like to be a part of that, I'll give you our website for details later on. Mm. Not only do diseases possibly run in families, but groups of diseases. That's right. That's what we call genetic correlation, where you find the same genes causing condition A also cause condition uh, B. And a, a very good example that, for example, is anorexia nervosa, which turns out has a very high genetic correlation, about 0.5, with obsessive-compulsive disorder. Uh, So we're studying both of these things at the moment. We recruited over 3,000 anorexia patients, uh, which contributed to a worldwide total of about 17,000, from which we found the first eight genes for anorexia uh, within both that study and the depression study, we've also got uh, items for obsessive-compulsive disorder. So we're, we're actually directly studying that, that correlation. So you could have anorexia and OCD, or you could have anorexia and a sibling could have the OCD. That's right. Well, in both cases, you, you know, these things run in families. And, I mean, a very interesting question is because anorexia is overwhelmingly a female condition, but, I mean, not totally, about 10% of cases are male, but, but it's, you know, over, over 90%. Yeah. So the question is, what are, what are the brothers of anorexic females like? And the answer is they've got a pretty high rate of OCD. Because so many females had anorexia, do you think that's part of the reason why in the past that they thought it was an environmental thing? Well, I think the, the default until recently was to assume that, uh, and it's a hangover of the sort of Freudian psychology from the 30s to imagine that um, that it was all environmental and um, this is not a harmless assumption because it, it causes many individual patients and even more so their families yep. to torture themselves with guilt. Where did we go wrong? What have we done wrong? What could we have done differently? You, you asked at the beginning, you know, why are we doing this and you know, what, what, why does it matter? Just merely understanding that genetic factors are so important in these diseases, in many ways very liberating in alleviating that sort of guilt. And I mean, I've had so many people ring me up or, or just make the comment to me, oh, it's great to know this, you know, because we wondered what we'd done wrong or why, what, why our daughter is, you know, has got this condition and knowing this really 
puts a completely different light on it. Well, removes the blame. It's extraordinary, and it is a family disease because everybody suffers. Well, that's right. That's, of course, that's the other aspect of mental disease, that it's not just the patient who suffers, it's sort of the other family members who have to live with that. At least if we can spread the message that they shouldn't feel guilty at an environmental level. <laughs> they might be guilty in the sense that they transmitted those genes, but there's nothing you can do about that. Well, I think family Christmases would be a bit different anyway, a bit less blame-throwing. Well, exactly, exactly, and I think that's important. So for that alone, I think this work is worth doing, but our intent is more than that. The hope is that through this phase of actually trying to find these genes and the neurochemical pathways that we'll be able to design better drugs than are available at the moment. Um, The other aspect of our depression study is that we're looking not only for the genes that cause depression, but for the genes that influence how people respond to particular medications. So it's a commonplace that antidepressants only work for some people, and we've quantified that quite dramatically in our own study. I mean, uh, you prescribe to a very large sample, you know, we've got 15,000 patients, and... um, the antidepressant, the first antidepressant they take will only work for about a third of them. A third of them uh, so-so and a third of them not at all or even adverse reactions. So it's quite clear that we can do a lot better. It's a very crucial time because people who are about to go onto antidepressants need the help quickly and it's very much trial and error. If you could change that to this is your medication, this will work on you, Mm. that would... I imagine, save lives. That's exactly our intention. At the moment, as you say, there's just a lot of hit and miss in prescribing. It's, it's just guesswork. Um, two-thirds of the time it doesn't really work, and so they then have to wash out, uh, switch to another. Uh, you know, this is, this is highly distressing for the patient. Of course, it's expensive too. The hope of our project is that we'll be able to find genes that predict which people respond best to which medication. Increasingly in the future, everyone will already have all the genotyping done and you can just simply do a quick look up and say, oh, well, actually, you you know, you know, should use this drug because that one won't work for you uh, and we should be able to do that in a predictive way. How um, far away from we... I don't think that's more than about 10 years away. I think, I think already there's, there's a bit of this going on I mean, for certain rarer conditions like prescribing warfarin as a blood thinner mm. for potential stroke victims. I mean, we know that um, for some people there's a, there's a highly adverse reaction to warfarin and there's a simple genetic test that people can take. I'm not actually sure whether they don't already take it before it's prescribed. And there are, there are quite a few other drugs uh, like f- for which there are, there are already tests that can be uh, done to... Uh, determine whether it's a good idea to prescribe that or not. Do we have to wait for the cost of doing a genome to come down? It's quite expensive now. No, we see this is, this is not true because you, you no doubt have been talking to the people who talk about ge- uh, sequencing uh, where it still is very expensive. It's 1500 or $2,000 or whatever. And if you add in all the bioinformatic processing, that's highly expensive. The fact is you can get 98% of that information with a gene chip that costs twenty dollars, um, and this is something the sequences haven't really quite got their heads around yet. Ah. Um, and in fact, at that cost, you know, we can afford to do well. We could do. We could afford to do the whole population. So, in, if they wanted to, 
That's but, right. But, but, where they're prepared to have their genes yeah, on yeah. file. But I mean, in in, in the future, um, one can imagine that people will just you know uh, you see once you've had that chip done, that then predicts everything. Um, well, and, I know and, blood and pressure is the same. It's very hit and miss, and, and that could be genetically... Well, exactly. Well, already um, we've got the ability to predict blood pressure, cardiovascular disease uh, from a gene chip. When I say predict, these are all probability statements. That's just telling you, you your risk. But in that sense, it's no different from going to the doctor and having a cholesterol test or your blood pressure or whatever and then you know you look up a little nomogram that will give you your risk mm-hmm. uh, your individual risk so this is just adding one more figure to that that will refine it um, and that's already powerful enough for coronary artery disease and for breast cancer and uh, a few other diseases too uh, but our aim is to make that list very much longer i've got to say there's a lot of hope here for a lot of incredibly vulnerable people and a a scientist remarked recently the long drought without much progress in understanding the genetics of depression has recently ended would you agree with that yeah i I think that's right because um well first of all as i said we've known for a long time from twin studies that there are genes affecting depression but in terms of finding what they are it's taken us a very long time and when we published our first Gender and White Association study on depression in 2009, and we had 10,000 cases, nothing. And then two years later, we published another one with, I think, 20,000 cases, absolutely nothing. By that stage, we'd realised that we needed to have really huge samples. And so then my colleague, Naomi Ray, who's at UQ, used to be here at QRMR, actually, published last year the first uh, really successful study with 44 genes, and that was based on a sample size of 130,000 cases, about double that number of controls. And then that was followed within a year by another study adding more people, so the sample is now doubled at its 260,000 and a a huge, over a million controls, and with that we've got 102 genes. And then we've just added to that our Australian Genetics of Depression study, which is you know, quite small relative to that. But yeah. So we've got about another 10 genes uh, that have just come from, from, from what we're adding. It really does sound like the, the drought is over. And at the end of the drought, there's a, uh, a flourish of spring that hopefully will be useful and practical. For well, that's right. But, I mean, we now need uh, people with the appropriate skills, to uh, molecular skills, to actually pick up these hits, as we call them, mm. uh, from the Gen and White Association studies and do the functional work to actually turn these into something that drug companies may be, yep. may be interested in. I should say, uh, all the information in this podcast is general in nature and not personalised medical advice. So you should always seek your own medical advice. Yeah. If you do want to be a part of a very, very, very large study which will help a lot of people now and in the future... It's, 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 it's Australian Genetics of Depression study and our website is geneticsofdepression.org.au. Genetics of Depression. One word, no dots, no capitals. <laughs> You've said that a few times. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure. Maybe you or someone you know needs help with some of the things we've talked about today. You can call Beyond Blue, 1300 22 4636 or Lifeline on 13 11 14.